HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This series is brought to you by the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya. And this is Shift Work by Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, a podcast bringing you stories from the heart of the restaurant industry. Each week, I'll introduce you to leaders who are working to transform hospitality. You'll also hear from folks who are in the restaurant trenches to hear firsthand some of the challenges they face. This week, I'm talking to Saru J. Haraman, one of the industry's leading worker advocates as president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. But first, meet former RWCF board member Chris White. Chris has a degree in culinary arts from Johnson & Wales University and has worked in the industry for 15 years. Higher education promised certain advantages in the workplace, but Chris had a rude awakening when it came to salary negotiations. So I applied for a job and I was talking to the chef and, you know, I didn't have a lot of practical experience, but I, I did have a degree in culinary arts. Over the course of this interview, um, you know, we eventually got to the point where we were talking about the pay. And, you know, I told him, I don't even remember what the number was, but I told him a number that I thought was fair. And, you know, his response to me was, well, you know, you culinary school kids, you always want more money. So my impression was coming out of school with a you know a degree in my chosen field, that that would be a foundation to that would be a foundation to get paid 
more. And that is your foundation for um, a career. And to go into a job interview and to be told your education is actually is actually impeding you from getting paid. Culinary school was, you know, $25,000 a year. So you got $50,000 of debt on top of your head and you have someone trying to negotiate you down when in reality and all the information I've been given was when you get out there, they're going to appreciate the fact that you went to school. So that was kind of my my first, just my my very first interaction with the industry was um, being told that my education is actually uh, was actually a barrier for me to getting paid more. Saru J. Haraman has spent her career fighting to raise wages and improve working conditions for restaurant workers. A graduate of Yale Law School and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, her leadership has been recognized by the Obama White House, CNN, and the James Beard Foundation. She wrote Behind the Kitchen Door, Forked, A New Standard for American Dining, Bite Back, People Taking on Corporate Food and Winning. With One Fair Wage, she is working towards a future in which all restaurant owners pay the full minimum wage with fair, non-discriminatory tips on top a shift that would lift millions of workers out of poverty. Hi, Saru. Welcome to Shift Work. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just so our listeners understand, how much on average, I'm just going to get right into it, um, how much on average do restaurant workers earn per hour? And how does that vary from front and back of the house? So nationwide, um, actually the median wages for uh, both front and back of house are pretty similar, actually. Um, they are about in the $10 range, including tips. And the reason why they're similar is that on the whole, the restaurant industry is the lowest paying workforce in the United States of America, hands down. Um, and most front of house workers work in very casual restaurants, IHOPs, Denny's, bars, dive, dive bars across America, and they don't make very much money in tips and they earn a sub-minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. So their $2 wage plus minimal tips ends up being very similar to the, frankly, very low wage that the back of house gets. And so the two are very similar for most of the country. Now in large cities, urban areas, you, you have this minority of workers that works in fine dining restaurants that tend to be white servers, bartenders in front of house. There you see great disparities between front and back. But on the whole nationwide, uh, really all restaurant workers are in a similar boat of being the lowest paid workers in America, whether they're in the front or the back. I think that's a, that's a really great distinction. I think that typically, especially when we're talking about a tip system, right, a lot of the argument is that, you know, you hear customers say, well, this is a thank you, right, for good service. They very much feel as though, you know, good service should include a good tip, or at the very least, tips are somewhat of like this equation. So bad service equals bad tip, good service equals good tip. But also, I think your distinction about fine dining versus kind of the rest of the country and what that looks like and that fine dining is only a very, very small percentage 
of what all restaurants and all you know front of the house workers are able to to make via tips. So what would you say then to diners who think that tips are, you know, a nice thing? It's a thank you. Um, and, you know, how does that actually work as a subsidy for um, what would be a real living wage? So uh, it's important to know the history of this issue. Um, the sub-minimum wage in the U.S. started at emancipation of slavery when the restaurant industry wanted the ability to hire Black people, Black women in particular, not pay them anything, essentially continue slavery, and have them live on this newfangled idea that had just come to Europe at the time, from Europe at the time, called tipping. Um, so they mutated the notion of tipping, which prior to emancipation had always been an extra or bonus on top of a wage. They mutated it at emancipation in the United States to becoming a replacement for wages so that they could basically pay black women nothing. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the right to the minimum wage for the first time, except for millions of black workers. And tipped restaurant workers were left out. They were given a $0 wage and told they had to live on tips. And we went from zero in 1938 all the way up to $2.13 an hour today. The federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America, which is a huge workforce, the number one fastest growing workforce in America is still $2.13 an hour in 2022. And the overwhelming majority of workers who live on that sub-minimum wage in 43 states in the U.S., because seven states have gotten rid of this, but the overwhelming majority of workers in the 43 states that persist with this legacy of slavery are women and disproportionately women of color mostly overwhelmingly women working in very casual restaurants and bars, suffering from the highest rates of poverty and economic instability of any workforce in America and the absolute highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry because they have to tolerate inappropriate customer behavior to get tips. So this is this was a really truly a crisis for an overwhelmingly female population of workers prior to the pandemic with the pandemic, it became, it went from a crisis, an economic injustice, a gender and racial injustice to becoming frankly a matter of life and death, which is why so many workers are leaving this industry. They just don't wanna put up with these sub-minimum wages anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you're working right now to end the sub-minimum wage and thank you very much for giving kind of that historic um, you know, context. So I think that that's important for this entire conversation for people to have that. Um, what is the status of that work, though, on a federal level? So uh, what's amazing is that after launching the campaign for One Fair Wage uh, in 2013 to end the subminimum wage for tipped workers, you know, we worked on it for so long. The pandemic, you know, made it so much more of an issue. Uh, we were thrilled that um, candidate Biden, uh, as a candidate, made it one of his signature issues on his campaign platform, uh, not just a $15 minimum wage, but fully ending the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, and then made it part of his very first bill package, COVID relief package, uh, that he introduced even before he was inaugurated in January of last year. Um, and so that we, there was a lot of momentum and excitement about that bill called the Raise the Wage Act. But of course, the parliamentarian, the Senate parliamentarian stripped it out of the COVID relief package. 
it then con- has continued as a bill, the Raise the Wage Act, which is um, still a really great bill. But there, but there's been so much, uh, you know, uh, stalling and fighting in Congress over a wide range of issues. Uh, it seems it seems like it'd be very hard for it to pass in this Congress. I mean, there still is a hope, but it seems like it would be hard. And so, uh, and so, a lot of us have turned to state fights, uh, where there is just so much momentum because because of the great resignation, because 1 million restaurant workers have left the industry during the pandemic. And of those who remain, 54% of restaurant workers who remain say they're leaving, 80% say the only thing that would make them come back to working in restaurants is a full livable wage with tips on top. And in response, we've tracked thousands and thousands of restaurants across the country that are raising wages, providing a full minimum wage with tips on top, So many restaurants across the country have voluntarily transitioned to a full minimum wage, no longer paying a sub-minimum wage to tipped workers because it's the only way to get workers to come back to work in the restaurant industry. But even they have joined forces with a lot of workers and a lot of these small businesses that have raised wages and said, saying, listen, we're raising wages to recruit staff to come back, but we can't do it alone. We need policy to make it a level playing field. And we need policy to signal to millions of workers, this is going to be permanent, not temporary change, and it's worth coming back to work in restaurants. So a lot of these employers are working with us on state legislation in, frankly, like a lot of states, at least a dozen states, we're moving this across the country, um, where policy is moving to raise wages and end some minimum wages frankly, as a way to get workers to come back to work in this industry. When you've got 54% of workers who are left, after a million have left, when you've got 54% of those who are left saying they're leaving, you really only have two choices as a country. Either we can cut the industry in half, you know, expect half the half the you know, ability to eat out on Valentine's Day, half the Sunday brunches, half the you know, date nights, or we raise the wage. They're the really only two options at this point. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's, um, you're kind of talking a little bit about from an owner perspective. And one of the things that I've heard, obviously there's the owners who are really listening to workers and saying, okay, we have to do something if we want to keep our doors open, keep the people happy, stay in business, right? But then there's other owners who are, you know, saying, I don't know how I can do this. How is this financially feasible? How are we supposed to make it work? Can I ask a clarifying question, though? Because from my understanding, the Raise the Wage Act is, it's ramping up, right? It's not saying that we are adopting, um, you know, $15 an hour minimum wage right off the bat, but essentially it's this graduated kind of step towards that within a certain number of years. Is that accurate? That's right. There, there really is no bill or ballot measure we've proposed to do this overnight. They're all gradually phased in both at the federal level and at the state level. Now, I will tell you a lot of the restaurant owners that have been raising wages in the last several months are saying we frankly prefer that it all go up at once. We need everybody to go in this direction, you know, all at once. But um, and and listen, if that's what they want to do, we're open to it. But we've never proposed that it go up overnight. We've always proposed a gradual increase. 
Definitely. So uh, speaking, I'm just kind of going to take my executive director of RWCF hat off for a second and speak um, as my, maybe my former life, we'll call it, as a restaurant owner. Um, But one of the things that we did at our restaurant here in Detroit um, a few years back was we went tipless. um, And we went from completely eliminating the tip line on every check um, to eventually that policy kind of grew and evolved as we talked to um, all of our employees who were essentially saying, well, you know, don't just take away the tip line completely. If customers want to offer a tip on top of, right, um, a service charge or on top of more elevated menu prices so that we can have a living wage, we think that we deserve that. So we ended up putting it back. And I just wonder, has one fair wage kind of um, evolved in its thinking from being against tipping to maybe being in favor of a reliable living wage with tips on top? And maybe what is the message? So Kiki, I'm I'm sorry to correct you, but we were never, ever, ever, ever against tipping entirely. <laughs> yeah, no, that was never the case. Um, there are many employers who chose to do that, but that was never what we were pushing for. Um, So from the very beginning, you know, the name of our organization is One Fair Wage. It's always been about a living wage. And we are agnostic, whether tips are on top of that or people use service charges or want to go to a gratuity-free model for us. The priority has always been from, you know, decade ago, uh, One Fair Wage, a full livable wage from uh, the employer. And we actually have created manuals and modules for employers, giving them options. You could go to a full wage and have tips on top. We encourage tips to be shared with all non-management employees in that case. That's what happens in the seven states that have already one fair wage. Tips are shared among non-management employees. Um, Or you could go to one fair wage and have a service charge, which a lot of employers uh, are increasingly liking, especially as a way to eliminate the implicit bias Um, that comes from customers who are uh, unfortunately inherently racist and biased. We find that tipping still allows workers of color to get tipped a lot less and earn a lot less than white workers. So a lot of employers are moving to service charges that really eliminate that implicit bias because it's a set amount regardless of who's serving you. Um, And then, of course, there are the employers that go to gratuity-free, but we've been agnostic as to which of those three models employers choose. And we've created all these case studies and uh, modules to help employers decide which is best for them. But for us, the most important thing has never been which of those mo- you know, options employers choose. It's always been that as a baseline, let's just do what the seven states have always done, which is just provide a full minimum wage and any kind of gratuity or service charge would be on top of that. Mm-hmm. Sorry, thank you for that correction, because I think that um, a lot of people who might be um, introduced to one fair wage are, um, are kind of have that thinking, which is that it's against tipping. And you're saying, no, we've never been against tipping. And also, it's not as though you're prescribing one simple model, right, for how to move forward. There are different ways that people can essentially elect into providing a fair wage for their employees, depending on their business. That's right. And it the reason why there may be some confusion it was actually an intentional disinformation, misinformation campaign by the National Restaurant Association to try to tell workers 
that uh, we were trying to get rid of tips and that the whole campaign was uh, going to result in them losing their tips. And frankly, as workers during the pandemic have come to understand, A, tips are unreliable and we want a wage, <laughs> B, um, uh, B, that there are states that are that where workers are faring better that have always had one fair wage. Um, that misinformation campaign has really failed because no nobody's buying it anymore. Nobody's buying it anymore that we're fighting to get rid of tips or um, or that this will get rid of tips because now there are so many restaurants during the pandemic that have switched to unfair wage with tips on top. I think people have just gotten a lot more used to the idea, especially during the pandemic. We saw a lot of employers switch um, to this model because there was no indoor dining. So um, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of restaurants when there was no indoor dining basically switch to this model, a full minimum wage uh, and then sharing tips among all non-management employees because there wasn't the same sort of front of house, back of house divide during the pandemic. Um, when there, and so a lot of people actually experienced what we had been pushing for all along and found that it was great. It was great. It provided more stability for everybody. It created a better sense of team between front and back. Um, and people found that it really worked. And so, listen, a couple of key things happened during the pandemic. Number one, six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. So one in four uh, Americans who lost their jobs was in the restaurant industry. And two thirds of tipped workers reported that they couldn't get unemployment insurance in most states because they were told in so many states, and we heard this actually a lot in Michigan, um, that their wage was too low, their subminimum wage was too low to qualify for benefits, and that their tips really were too messy or underreported or unreported to count towards that calculation of benefits. And so at that moment, we heard from thousands of workers, wow, if the state is telling me that my wage is too low, I should probably never have accepted this subminimum wage to begin with. That was the first sort of lightning bulb, light bulb moment. Then a lot of workers went back to work in the summer of 2020, and they actually found that tips had gone down. Overwhelmingly, we, we surveyed thousands of workers. 70% of them said tips had gone down because sales were down. And they found that customer hostility and health risks and sexual harassment, which was already the highest in our industry of any industry, went way up with thousands of workers reporting I'm regularly asked, take off my, your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much to tip you. Take off your mask so I can see the pretty face of my server. So that, that also caused a lot of people to say I'm done with this industry. But the real breaking point was when people were asked to enforce social distancing and mask rules and COVID vaccination card rules on the same customers from whom they had to get tips to survive. That was a moment in which so many workers. That was that fall 2020 was a, a moment when we heard a lot of workers say, I'm done. I just, this is not worth it anymore. You don't pay me enough to enforce these rules and then get the blowback that I get from enforcing these rules. We had members who were punched in the face for asking for COVID cards. There was one person who was shot for asking for a COVID card. I mean, it, you know, you don't, you're asking me to get tips to make up my base wage from the same people who hate me for asking them to do these things. That's it. You don't pay me enough to do this. And so 
that's why I say a million workers have left and are, are just not willing to put up with it anymore. And so that misinformation campaign has just really, at this point, it's like, you know, we've been saying the debate is over, Kiki, like the debate is over at this point. It's not even a question of do workers want this? You know, can we do this? No, workers are saying we won't work without it. Employers are paying it now in the thousands. We're tracking thousands of restaurants paying this across the country. And so there's no more question of whether it can be done or whether workers want it. Those debates are pretty much over. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I'm actually really happy that you brought up um, some of what's going on in Michigan, because I know that that's one of the states that you're concentrating your efforts in right now. It's also my state. Um, so, you know, <laughs> very much appreciate that. Um, you know, Sarah, maybe on some of the um, some of the research that you already mentioned, one thing that um, I wonder if you have any um, anything to add to this, but in your research, what is the correlation between higher worker pay and the health of the industry? So we have done so much research with employers who have raised wages, and what they find is that they actually, have far less turnover. Our calculation is that you can cut your turnover in half in an industry that has the highest rates of employee turnover of any industry. And that costs a lot of money. It may not, you know, you may not track the costs in your P&Ls, in your expense, income and expense statements, but there, there are so many hidden costs to turnover from employee morale, retraining, rehiring, recruitment, I know employers are seeing it with their own eyes right now when they're desperately trying to find staff, how hard it is to lose people because of the low wage. So raising wages reduces employee turnover. It increases morale. It increases productivity. Um, and very important for small businesses, it increases consumer spending, all of which improves the bottom line. And so that's at a micro level. That's what we've heard from frankly, hundreds of small business restaurants across the country. But when you look at a macro level, the seven states that have done this already, that have raised wages and ended the subminimum wage for tipped workers, that's California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska, the data shows they have higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the restaurant industry, higher small business growth rates in those seven states. Those seven states lost fewer restaurants during the pandemic than the 43 states with a sub minimum wage. And also, of course, for workers, you see one half the rate of sexual harassment because when women get a full minimum wage, they're not as dependent on tips. They don't feel like they have to put up with as much from customers. That reduces liability for employers. Um, you see far less you know, wage theft and litigation because it's a cleaner system to pay everybody a full wage than having to count, do the tips, bring people to the full minimum wage. So, so many benefits to the bottom line. I mean, in New York State, we've heard from a lot of employers like Tom Colicchio and others that they prefer the one fair wage system simply because it reduces litigation and liability and lawyers going after them around the complications of the two-tiered wage system and having to make sure tips make up the difference. But, you know, you don't have to take it from me. Last year, Denny's CFO announced to shareholders, this was in a, it was, it was actually an expose in Newsweek that in the same moment, the National Restaurant Association was telling uh, Congress that there's no way we can afford $15. There's no way we can afford one fair wage. It'll kill the industry. 
In that same moment, the CFO of Denny's was telling shareholders in a public shareholder call, actually paying 15 and one fair wage in California has resulted in, in his words, Denny's California outperforming the system. In other words, doing better than Denny's performed in any other state. And he said, it's because we pay more and so consumer spending is higher. And for small businesses, that's essential. For small businesses, you rely on the community to have the spending ability to come eat out in the restaurant. And unless people are paid enough, especially in the throes of a global pandemic and not having received unemployment insurance and struggling with rent and all of these things, unless people have the ability to spend that, it's going to really hurt small business restaurants more than anybody else. I'm glad you you mentioned that towards the end, because I think, you know, it's so important to have kind of these bigger restaurant groups like a Denny's or like Colicchio, right? And his hospitality group, places like that to really say, no, this is what we need to do. Because I think being the only kid on the block, right, or the new kid on the block and trying this, it's you're against a lot of, it's too hard, right? It's too hard. And consumers are like, well, why are your prices so elevated, right? Because they are not factoring in what actually is the cost of a plate of food in the same way that we are. That's right. No, it has to be policy. It has to be universal. It has to be a level playing field. Uh, But it has to happen because there is no other way to get so many workers to come back to this industry. Right now, what workers are saying is anything else or nothing at all is better than going back to work in restaurants. And that's a very bad place for the industry to be in. So it has to happen through policy one way or another. Absolutely. Saru, to the listeners in the states that um, One Fair Wage is focusing their efforts in, how can they get involved? Thank you for asking. Please do go to our website, onefairwage.org. You can click on send an, uh, the, the option to send a note to your legislator, um, or you can just sign up to get engaged as a worker, as an employer, as a volunteer. Uh, but even as a consumer, you can go to highroadrestaurants.org, H-I-G-H, roadrestaurants.org. And there you can find restaurants in your area that are paying a livable wage. We encourage you to support those restaurants, but also go to any restaurant you want to go to and say at the end of the meal, hey, I love I love eating here, but I'd love to see you be part of the high road to profitability. Here's the website. Uh, can I sign you up to at least get more information? I want to keep supporting you, but I want to see you pay a livable wage to your workers. That's awesome. Thank you, Saru. Um, we're going to do a short break, and then we typically end shift work with um, a little rapid fire question segment. This series is brought to you by the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, an advocacy and action nonprofit created by and for restaurant workers. We are a nationwide community dedicated to making the restaurant industry more hospitable for everyone. By addressing quality of life issues that disproportionately affect restaurant workers, 40% of whom live on poverty level wages, we hope to strengthen the workforce and increase opportunity for advancement in the industry to more people. The restaurant industry is notorious for low wages, poor job mobility, high turnover, and burnout. But it doesn't have to be that way. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to learn more about what we're doing to make change and join us. Welcome back to Shift Work. On this episode, we've been focusing on issues of labor and compensation in the hospitality industry. 
We'll get back to my conversation with Sari J. Haraman shortly. First, John DeBerry, RWCF's co-founder and board president, has some resources to share. Hi, I'm Restaurant Workers Community Foundation co-founder John DeBerry. What do Olive Garden, Longhorn, Capitol Grill, Yard House, Bahama Breeze, Seasons 52, and Eddie V's all have in common? They're all restaurants run by Darden, one of the 50 largest private employers in North America, whose 1,800 restaurants serve 320 million guests per year. In the second quarter of 2021, Darden's sales exceeded $2 billion, and they recorded more than $190 million in profits. Yet, of their 160,000 workers, 20% are paid the sub-minimum wage, or $2.13 an hour before tips. Instead of paying workers a fair wage, they're paying stock dividends and CEO salaries to the tune of $15.7 million. One Fair Wage unsuccessfully sued Darden to raise wages in 2021 and is now filing an appeal. In the meantime, think twice before digging into bottomless bowls of pasta and endless breadsticks. Darden's generosity doesn't extend to its workers. All right. Saru, welcome back. We're going to do some rapid fire questions. Um, Yep. One minute or less if you can answer them. Um, Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Question number one. Name three groups that don't want to end tipped minimum wage. The National Restaurant Association, um, state restaurant associations that are affiliated with the National Restaurant Association, Republicans. (laughs) Excellent. Oh, and I should just clarify, Republican legislators, not Republican voters. Republican voters actually support ending the subminimum wage for tipped workers. Thank you for clarifying. Um, Number two, what's the wildest or um, most disconcerting statistic uncovered by one fair wage in the last year? I mean, the wildest thing is that after tolerating the subminimum wage for 150 years since emancipation, uh, it's taken a global pandemic and 150 years for millions of restaurant workers across the country to fully and wholly reject the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. And basically as a result of their mass exodus from the industry and saying, we will not work for these wages anymore, we're we're seeing thousands of restaurants nationwide raise their wages to $15, $20, $25, $30 an hour plus tips. Awesome. Uh, number three, what celebrity or potentially public figure would you like to collaborate with most? I'm not going to name one. There are, I mean, ha- almost all celebrities and elected officials worked in the restaurant industry in their youth or at some point in their life. Uh, many for many celebrities, it was how they actually what they were doing when they got their big break, and so. Uh, we would like to collaborate with any celebrity that has worked in the industry and knows what it's like to live on a subminimum wage and have to live off of tips. Right. Um, casting a wide net. I like it. Uh, number four, tell me one story or thing um, that gives you hope right now. One of our leaders in Washington, D.C., her name is Ifoma Azumaki. She is uh, a, been a bartender, server, um, and she's left the industry because the way everybody else has, because she doesn't want to put up with the subminimum wage for tipped workers anymore. And her, in her words, she says, uh, you know, we finally have are learning our worth. We're worth more than two and three and four and five dollars. We're worth more than having to live off of tips. We're worth a full livable wage. Uh, and tips should be an extra bonus. And we are professionals. So that's that it, what's inspiring is the numbers of workers who are 
recognizing their worth in this moment. Yes. All right. And finally, what are you, Saru, most excited about for 2022? I am most excited about taking advantage of this moment of upheaval and opportunity in the industry. Just on Monday, the 14th of February, we announced a big new campaign to commit an initial $25 million to raise wages and end subminimum wages in 25 states by the United States 250th anniversary, which is 2026. So I am so excited to get this done in half the states in the country, raising wages for more than half of workers in the country in this moment of opportunity. And certainly by the time the nation reaches its 250th anniversary, because I think it's time for all of us to basically ask ourselves, will we by our 250th anniversary as a country shed these legacies of slavery, shed, you know, vestiges of our original sin of structural racism in this country? Uh, and will we be a different, more equitable country in our next 250 years? Saru, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have you on Shift Work today. I'm just, um, I'm in awe of a lot of the things that you're doing. And I think that a lot of our listeners are going to gain a lot of clarity um, around what it means to have one fair wage. So thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Shift Work. To learn more about RWCF's work and donate to the cause, visit www.restaurantworkerscf.org. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and in the work as we bring you stories from the heart of the restaurant industry. Links to the organizations and resources mentioned in this episode can be found in our show notes. I'm your host, Kiki Luya. Our engineer is Liam Warner, and our show is produced by Hannah Forden and Caroline Hatchett. Shift Work is produced in collaboration with Heritage Radio Network, America's pioneer food podcast network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.